Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome, everyone. This is EU Confidential, Politico's brand new podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, author of the Brussels Playbook column. Every week on this podcast, we're exploring the world of EU and European politics with the people who live it, breathe it, and obsess over it. In this week's show, we cut through the spin after the start of the Brexit negotiation. We must lift the uncertainty caused by Brexit. We want to make sure that the withdrawal of UK happens in an orderly manner. We hear from EU Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström. We will have to respond, and we have, of course, expressed our concerns to the US administration, both from the European institutions, myself, and I know many other countries, especially the steel-producing countries have. So we will have to see what is in this legislation, of course. But, but yes, somehow we will have to react. And we bring in our Brussels Brains Trust in the form of Alva Finn and Lena Abarus to chew over some EU WTF moments and discuss a real-life dilemma in our Dear Politico section. So first up, Brexit. The talks finally got started on Monday, with Michel Barnier, David Davis and their teams sitting down in the European Commission's Berlinmont headquarters to kick things off. Joining me to talk about the talks, about the talks, is James Randerson, Politico's <laughs> Brexit news editor. Hi, James. Hello. So, the consensus was the EU won the first round of the talks. And there's been a lot of talk about scoreboards, but I want to talk about something else first. I want to talk about tone. I think tone matters. I think we saw some different, maybe unexpected tones from the two teams this week. What's your perspective on how the two parties presented themselves? I think when you look deeper, there, there really is a difference in tone, and, and it matters. So on the UK side, you've got David Davis, who really is you know, ideologically opposed to the whole idea of the European Union or certainly the UK's membership of it and has been fighting it for much of his political career. And it's hard for people like him to contain, I think, their glee and excitement. About like the cat who had the cream at the press conference. Absolutely. This is a dream come true for him. Now, Michel Barnier, by contrast, he was expressing this sense of grief that I think there is that has been evident really from the moment after the referendum result amongst the EU's sort of 27. Barnier talked about this being a sombre moment. 
And, you know, so it was kind of quite downbeat. But then towards the end of the press conference, he got quite animated, I thought, when he was talking about the fact that decisions have consequences. There will be consequences of this decision for the UK. He talked about consequences in terms of human, social, financial, legal, technical terms. And, you know, it was... He was expressing, I think, the fact that this burden has been placed on the EU and on him to sort out. And Yeah, at one I, point he said it's the UK leaving the EU, not the other way around, and absolutely. things flow from that. Absolutely, and, and the UK can't escape the responsibilities that come with that. So he did not come across as a man who was in the mood for lots of compromises and special deals and exclusions and so on. So, yeah, I thought there was a, fundamentally a real difference there. Now, most people wrote that up as the UK lost somehow, that they gave more than they gained. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Did they get anything that they really wanted out of this first round of discussion? I think it's worth just going back to the way he was quoted about this in mid-May, because it's quite instructive as to how the position has moved. So he's talking here about you know, the discussions about the divorce terms, so specifically the bill and those issues, and, you know, by contrast, the future relationship stuff, which is really about the trade deal that may or may not be done. And he said at the time, you can't decide one without the other. It's wholly illogical, and we happen to think the wrong interpretation of the treaty. So that'll be the row of the summer. We are very conscious of the time sequencing of this. We're also very conscious of how they will use the time sequencing to pressure us, and we will avoid that at every turn. So, well, except uh, you know, at the first term when the, he collapses and gives... Exactly. The, he, he's caved immediately. They've also telegraphed this idea of making a, quote, big and generous offer on citizens' rights. So my question there would be, um, how close can they really get to what the EU asked for? Because the EU asked for a lot. Like, they essentially said anyone in the UK the day before Brexit is entitled to live there permanently and invite any of their family in permanently for the rest of their lives can't quite believe the UK is going mm. to agree to that, but does size matter when it comes to this offer? <laughs> how big and how generous is it? Well, yes, it's important because this, I think, is really key to Barnier. I mean, he's really telegraphed that and said, you know, this is absolutely central to getting things off to a good start. The UK say they want to get things off to a good start, and hence, you know, this language about a big and generous offer, which come, we well, we expect on Monday, but, you know... The timings at the moment are kind of all over the place, so we'll see. The tricky thing here, and the devil really is in the detail, I think, is who oversees these rights, who adjudicates on the rights. You know, when there are disputes, and there inevitably will be, who has the final say? And the EU's position will be that has to be the European Court of Justice. The Brexiteers will say, well, it can't be the ECJ because we reject the idea of a foreign court having any... What is it going to be, Judge Judy? They're going to have to come up with some serious body that deals with this, even if it doesn't have the letters ECJ. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the Brexiteers would say, well, what's the matter with the Supreme Court? But the UK's Supreme Court, but of course that's possibly not going to be acceptable to someone who loses a case and says they're biased against me because I'm a European citizen who has grandfathered rights or whatever. Now, maybe they can come up with some deal where they create a special judicial body that is some combination of 
ECJ judges and Supreme Court judges or something like that. Who knows? And then there's the question of when is your cutoff point? The UK has been sort of indicating the moment when Article 50 was triggered. The EU are saying the day of actual leaving the European Union, which is you know, going to be very significant for some. That will mean some people get under the bar and some people don't. So there are all of these details to work out. So it's been an interesting week, James. Tell us, what comes next? What should we look out for? Well, so first of all, this big generous offer we've talked about, it'll be interesting to see how that is received and where the discussion goes after that. Whether there's a recognition on the UK side that the European Court of Justice is a, you know, a significant problem and they need to find a solution that's going to work for the EU 27. More broadly, I think that you know, there already is a recognition amongst UK politicians generally, perhaps less so in the Tory party at the moment, but I think they'll be forced to realise there needs to be a slightly different approach to Brexit because of the election result. They, they simply don't have a majority, and even if they do manage to lock in the DUP support, they're going to find it very difficult to get some of the Brexit measures through. And whether that translates into some kind of formal cross-party discussions, I kind of feel that's a bit unlikely because politics is so tribal, particularly between Labour and the Tories, that that might be tricky to engineer. But I think they're going to have to be more flexible. And, you know, uh, certainly what you're seeing at the moment is so-called soft Brexiteers like Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, being emboldened. You know, he, he didn't really talk very much about his position, if you like, over the last few months. But since the election, he's been on this very concerted drive to get business support and city support for a, a version of Brexit that retains more of the advantages of being part of the European Union. So, and he can afford to, because if you look yeah. at the numbers in Parliament, I mean, Theresa May can't really sack Philip Hammond. He just needs five friends to bring down any potential government. So she's got to incorporate at some level his input. And it could be the same for the next 10 in the line who have their own particular demands. Absolutely. Now, now it, it works both ways, of course. The soft Brexiteers may say, well, you know, we have a majority in Parliament for something that retains some form of single market access or some form of customs union access. But, of course, the hard Brexiteers are very united. There's this sort of block of about 50 Tory MPs who could very easily obviously bring down the government if they wanted to. So, you know, how that dynamic plays out is going to be very interesting. Well, thank you very much for that, James. I think it's all clear to us now that Brexit... Brexit means Brexit means backflips. And we're going to <laughs> take a lot of enjoyment watching both sides do their political gymnastics over the next two years. So thanks for joining us on EU Confidential. Pleasure. All that talk about Brexit and trade brings us very neatly to the next part of the podcast, my interview with Cecilia Malmström, the EU's trade commissioner. We spoke in the Bibliothèque Solvay, a grand, beautiful building from the 19th century, quite near the European quarter in Brussels. So it was a very beautiful setting and it was in front of a live audience. And it was great to really sink into some of the deep issues about what is basically the EU's face of hard power. That's what Cecilia Malmström is. And that's not my history with Cecilia. I last caught up with her in a line for a bus outside the Eurovision final in Stockholm around about a year ago. And we both did everything we could to avoid talking about work. So it was great to get into some really deep issues like Trump, the effects of Brexit, how she's dealing with Japan and China, and even 
we got in one point talking about Mexico and how the EU can be the teddy bear to Trump's America for Mexico. Um, I don't know if you know, but you're very big in Montana. In Montana? Yes. All right. I, I did my research, and you are perhaps the only commissioner to share your name with an American Air Force base and a discount store. I don't okay. know what your family did 100 to 150 years ago, but you're very popular over there in Montana. It could be your trump card in the U.S. trade negotiations. Ooh, <laughs> I'll take note of that. All right, thank you. Okay. But let's get into to something serious. I think when we were getting ready for this that interview... That was serious. That's that was very, very serious, very yeah. serious, very serious. Um, Brexit talks got underway. Um, do you have any first reactions to how it went? Well, it was a full day. I think it was a closed door, and they came out, and they said they had agreed on the next meeting. Well, that, that's progress. It could be worse. Well, I've been to trialogues in the European Parliament for several hours where we haven't got that far. So, yes, I, I think that okay. is progress, actually. <laughs> and have you figured out what you might offer Mr. Fox, Liam Fox, for your gift when you get those trade negotiations underway? Well, we're not there yet. I think uh, we need to get these negotiations ongoing. I think also there are some formalities back in the UK with a formal announcement of the new government and its program, and then they has to be started, and uh, the possible trade negotiations will not start yet. But we are, of course, I mean, they are still members, so we meet in different council constellations and different meetings and, and so on, like, like before. And the UK government has just appointed, in case people haven't followed this piece of news over the weekend, a man called Crawford Faulkner to be their top international trade negotiator. We haven't you welcome the competition? Uh, <laughs> we haven't uh, been able to talk yet, but okay. Uh, absolutely. Okay, okay. And Liam Fox is on a tour in the US as well, so it strikes me that he might be walking up close to the line about what he's allowed to do before Brexit actually takes place in terms of his trade negotiating. Do you have any red lines for Mr. Fox? Or <laughs> <laughs> is he getting close to those red lines if you don't want to specify them? Well, they are still members of the European Union, so obviously they cannot negotiate trade agreements before they actually leave. And that I think they, they know and our partners know. And a lot of our lawyers out there know that as well. But I think it's quite natural that they sort of explore a little bit the territory, that they put themselves in contact with their biggest economic partners, obviously US and a few others, you know, not negotiating, but start preparing the ground a little bit. Obviously, if they were to start to negotiate, that would really be breaking a red line, but I don't think they will. So there's no real harm in them exploring a little bit. Because they have to do that. They will leave almost 40 trade agreements that we have negotiated on their behalf, and they are members of that. So, of course, they will have to do their own trade agreements. Good, good. Well, let, let's broaden it out and bring it back to, to you a little bit more. I wanted to sort of put a theory or a thought to you, and that is that as Commissioner for Trade, you know, it's almost like you're the face of hard power for the European Commission. I wouldn't... Ooh. Margaret Vestager, I think she obviously has some hard power yeah, as well. She's quite hard power yeah, as but well. But she can't really talk about her hard power in the way that you can. So you're a more interesting interview. No, but she radiates hard power, doesn't she? <laughs> what, what do you do? You're not radiating. You're pulsing it. It's pulsating. Yeah, I'm more um, discreet. Discreet. Okay. Okay. Well, that's terrible news for this interview. But is we're going to have to oh. get you restart. <laughs> Uh, but the, the point I wanted to make is you have this hard power, but you're also under pressure from a lot of different mm -hmm. angles. We have the Trump era that's emerged. Mr. Macron has his own ideas that might not always be in a line with yours, Brexit and so on. Is it fair to say that you at once have this power, but you're also sort of circled a little bit by these other pressures? 
Well, yes. I cannot start one single trade negotiation without having a mandate given to me unanimously by the member states. And once we start negotiations, we have to talk to them and report all the time, before and after, and as well as the European Parliament, the intercommittee there. And then, as there has been quite a lot of public debate on trade Mm -hmm. lately. We are also trying to really engage with civil society, with business. So yes, we are under constant pressure to do this, but that's part of the job, of course. You must have shaped it in some way, where I, Mm. if we we wind the clock back a little bit to something like ACTA, you know, that struck me as trade diplomacy that was kind of stuck in a different era. And that So I guess I'm asking, um, do your officials get that they've needed to change and how have you changed how you do your own work? Yes, I mean, I think one of the most important things, and that's probably also because of my background as a Swede, that that I really wanted to increase the transparency in the trade negotiations. Of course, you cannot solve the most difficult final items in front of the TV cameras, everybody realised. But there's a lot you can publish. There's a lot you can share uh, with others. So I think I have contributed to more transparency in trade negotiations. And once you open that box, you can't really close it. So that is hopefully safe also for my, 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 (laughs) my, my successors. And we've also tried to do trade much more value-based because we are the biggest trader in the world, the European Union. We're the biggest exporter, importer, investor. We have responsibility. And people want to know who made this, under what conditions. Uh, You would like to feel comfortable that this is at least decent. We cannot make the world democratic overnight, but we can contribute a little bit. And that is what I've tried to also do in our trade negotiations. So inclusiveness, transparency, value-based, these are the things I've hoped to sort of impose on trade. And that is necessary because people want to be, they demand to be involved. These are all words that mm. remind me of President Trump. These, these seems to be like I, come the on. leitmotif <laughs> of his uh, administration. No. So you, you wouldn't say that's what characterizes Trump. What does characterize that administration and their approach to trade? Well, it's still a bit confusing, I must say. We don't know their full long-term trade agenda. What we have seen so far are a few promises from the trade campaign where he delivers what he said, withdrawing from TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, renegotiating NAFTA that will start now in in August, and then some uh, executive orders and proposals that, from our point of view, are going in a very protectionist direction. I mean, reinforcing Buy America, which will make public procurement much more difficult, reinforcing some laws also in, for instance, the Jones Act. There are talks now, any day there will be announcement maybe on how to protect certain items, notably steel from imports, using a very old provision in the American law on uh, 232 on security screening, which I think would be detrimental. Yeah, well, let's sit for a minute on the idea of the 232 decision. So for anyone who's not familiar, Section 232, that is essentially the US, if they were to take a decision under that section of their law, it would allow them to use a national security loophole to, for example, Mm. impose tariffs on Mm. European steel. steel. Because there are tariffs already on Chinese steel, but not on European steel. That could come any day now. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the start of a trade war, if they trigger that? Well, we should be very careful in using that word, but it is definitely not a good sign because we are not the biggest steel producers of the world. China is, and we share with the U.S. a concern of China's policy when it comes to subsidizing big 
quite old-fashioned, some of them state-owned companies, and dumping global prices. So this is an issue where EU and US has been working hand-in-hand, hand, also with some other countries, to stop these unfair practices and to have a dialogue with the Chinese on how we can help them in, in a transition. But Chinese steel imports in US and EU are now subject to a lot of anti-dumping. So there's quite a lot, little happening. So of course, if that is done, maybe it's not targeted vis-a-vis -vis Europe, but it will hit us very hard and our companies. So that is unfortunate. So you would but you would have to respond in some way. We there. Will, Otherwise, yes. all the steel will flood onto the European market. and then that We will have to respond. And we have, of course, expressed our concerns to the US administration, both from the European institutions, myself, and I know many other countries, especially the steel producing countries have. So we will have to see what, what is in this legislation, of course. But, but yes, somehow we will have to react. But yeah. that we will see uh, afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. You're obviously also in talks with Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that they're keen to cut a deal because they're afraid of what is happening north of the, the border? Like, in a sense, are we, are you, Mexico's diversification strategy? <laughs> are we there, teddy bear? Um, well, we had started with Mexico before. We have an older trade agreement with Mexico. It's 17 years old. It has worked well, but it's old-fashioned. So we decided long before we knew who would be in the White House today that we would update it. And that work has started. But I think it's fair to say that we have decided jointly to intensify talks. For them, it's probably I mean, economically important. We are an important economic partner, but also geopolitically important to show that they can strike other deals and diversify their dependence from the US. But also globally, I think there is a willingness today from countries who believe in trade, who believe in fair trade, who believe that trade can be a win-win, not I win and you lose and who believe in open markets, multilateral rules, to stick together. And Mexico and EU are obvious partners. We also have Japan, South Korea. We negotiate with Indonesia. I mean, there is, I think there has been a sense of urgency that we need to stick together and to show that, that yes, trade is actually good for people, but you need to do it the right way. Mm -hmm. We are a lot of countries coming together to talk about how we can do more progressive trade. Canada is the obvious example. Mm -hmm. They have a very progressive government. We work to also promote sustainable development, um, the role of trade unions, environment, uh, etc. Now, let's come a little bit closer to home. We've got this guy, Emmanuel Macron. Mm -hmm. He's... Uh, yeah. Got a new job. Le président de la République. Mm? Uh, yes, yes, small promotion. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about him because he also has some interesting ideas on trade. So he wants better trade defense, let's say, in mm -hmm. general. But some specific examples, uh, he'd like to see foreign investment screening. He, like the French presidents before him, has always had a bit of a thing about reciprocity rules. And he specifically floated this idea of a bi-European act. So Ooh. my question to you is, is this new European hero <laughs> forcing you to become more protectionist than you would like to be? <laughs> well, I think many of us welcome very much the election of, of our president. And I think the president is, is, of course, coming to the summit this week. And some of these issues will be discussed. We have had already a lot of trade defense instruments that we have had to use this last year especially vis-a-vis -vis China, because the situation is quite exceptional. So we are using the trade defense instruments we have. We have also asked the legislators to agree on our proposal to update them. Mm -hmm. And there, I think, we will have the support of President Macron as well to make sure that we can act quicker, that we can engage with the industry at an earlier stage, that we can shorten a little bit the, the investigation, and that we are you know, more modern and, and efficient. So he's a help in that respect, because Sorry? he... he 
he helps you in one he, respect. Well, he helps he and he underlines uh, this as well. And then, I mean, he has some other ideas as well. I think we need to see what more in detail does he mean with that. The investment screening is something that we will have to look at what is legally possible to do in the European level, what is desirable to that do. That sounds... Well, I wouldn't classify his ideas into normal and not normal, but the investment screening, that at least has precedence. You know, there are other countries that have these review boards and so on. Yes, and many member states have their own national legislation. So maybe we should see what can you do nationally? How can we do best practices? How can we compare? I think these are sensitive because we want investment as well. We don't want to hurt investment. Investment has been good for Europe. So we need to see the right balance there. Mm -hmm. Now, I think... You have almost touched on this, but maybe this is asking for a little bit more detail on uh, does EU exclusive competence for foreign direct investment allow it to legislate on investment screening? That I can't answer because that is very complicated because it's broad. That We need to do the legal analysis of this. What is EU competence? What is member states' competence? What is share competence? And that is quite complicated. So we need and is thorough it purely legal. a legal decision where the legal service... No, no, first we need to know, get the legal advice on this. Then, of course, there's also, this is politically very sensitive, mm-hmm. but we need to know legally what we do at the same time as we discuss it politically. So this is something that I think we have just started to put on the agenda. Mm-hmm. We should shred carefully here because it is sensitive, but we need to get the legal and the political uh, right, and I think there are different views between member states on this as well. Mm-hmm. And while we're thinking on these China-related topics... We were both in Davos together at the World Economic mm-hmm. Forum. President Xi gave that quite extraordinary speech Absolutely, on globalization. Yeah. And, and I mean that in all senses of the word. How much does the EU have to do the heavy lifting before China is fully ready to match those words from President Xi? Because I think there were, there were fine words. There were really fine words, and that was an excellent speech. Uh, we liked the content, and we, I mean, I think also rhetorically it was a beautiful speech. But now we need them to walk the talk, because what he said that we all welcome. And if China were to take that leadership and move towards a stronger role in getting rid of trade obstacles and so on, we would all welcome it. But we haven't seen that. On the contrary, we've seen some quite new proposals that in making European investment there more complicated and, and difficult. Our European investment is going down in China, which is very worrying. So we hope that they can walk the talk. I know that they have a difficult political internal year in front of them with the party congress in October and so on with different you know, complications as always on this. So maybe later this fall we will have more clarity. Well, they've got it easy in some respects because they only do a five-year budget. Yeah, exactly. You, yeah. you have to do with a seven-year budget. So. Well, so far, we'll see. <laughs> um, so let's talk on one final issue before we get a bit into ways of working of the Commission, and that's on this idea of the multilateral investment court. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had ministerial discussions yep. about it. It was clearly a quite innovative way to move forward from a really tough mm-hmm. political debate. I mean, people were not happy about the existing system. So can you give us a bit of an update? Who is kind of on board? Who is only interested? Will the UK consider signing up? What's the state of play? Well, this is an attempt to move away from the old bilateral investment agreement, the old ISDS system. ISDS turned out to be quite toxic acronym, but also not only the acronym, but it really led to a lot of protests and so on, which I can understand because the system is outdated. And even if it has basically worked, there has been some things that have not worked, and there are loopholes that we need to, in 2017, we need to repair. So the idea was that we could maybe move 
all these 3,400 agreements that exist all over the world, so this is a debate that is not only ongoing in Europe, and have an international court that could deal with them, with proper judges who are totally independent, with high ethical standards, who would look at this, where there would be an appeal mechanism, where there would be full transparency, and a sort of court-like system, and that would replace. And we have had meetings on ambassador level and on ministerial level. I mean, countries like Canada and Argentina uh, are, are fully on board. Many countries have expressed their support for the idea, but they want to, to know more. Others are a little bit more careful. So far, the U.S. more careful. Well, those who have the old system, like the U.S., for instance, they think that their system has worked well. The U.K. have not. I mean, they, have, they are backing the European Union, so they are, of course, fully supporting this and, uh, as a member state. If they would have another position as in, you know, after Brexit, I, I don't know. I don't think so. They've been very supportive on this. And we had a meeting with ministers in Davos, where we were. There were around 30 ministers. And most of them expressed their support. So now we are uh, organizing an event the 10th of July with UNCITRAL, which is the United Nations Trade Forum, to have a discussion on this with ministers as well. There, the whole world is a member of that to see how we can move forward. So it's moving forward, but we need to the whole world. Now, a final question about how trade functions for women. I'm hosting together uh, with the International Centre of Trade a conference with guests from all over the world on women and trade, because I think this is something we have not given enough attention. So we want to hear examples of how trade affects women, how trade can help women all over the world, and if there are things in trade we could do to support women in a better way. Um, So I heard that you were baking cakes on Friday, or that you were in a cake factory at the very least with your team. <laughs> I, uh, I was not baking, I was eating. Eating, okay. <laughs> T- tell, tell us a little bit about that. Um, uh, it might have been almond cakes was the, the tip. Yes, I well, I had team building with my fantastic cabinet, and we were in uh, the city of Göteborg, which is my home city in Sweden, who is very much trade-oriented. They've been trading since the 17th, uh, well, since ages, but, but very active in, in trade. And there they have the biggest port in Scandinavia, which we visited, and a bakery. They sell almond cakes that they export. They froze them and they export to 34 countries, I think. So we were given, you know, a, a bit on the ground. How does export work? What are the problems? How do you deal with cultural differences? Some countries, like in the Arab countries, want them more sweet, other ones less sugar. You have almonds, they have to be halal, they have to be gluten, they are different. I mean, all these things from a quite small company, 120 employed, I mean, not not much. So they gave us, you know, a little lesson on how trade functions for them on a daily basis. And then it ended up with a visit in the factory and we could also taste some of their cakes. So that was good. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, that was EU Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström. So now it's time for EU WTF, our favorite time in the EU Confidential podcast. We've got a couple of great conundrums and jaw-dropping moments to discuss this week. So now it's the time to reintroduce our Brussels Brains Trust to you. Hi, Alva Finn. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lena Abarus. Hi, Ryan. These two very clever people are going to discuss two jaw-dropping EU moments this week. First up is a European Court of Justice decision, so that's the EU's top court, where they have ruled against a German tofu maker, and they have said that all producers of products such as soy milk, tofu butter, almond milk, essentially anything that is a milk replacement, that 
people who make those products cannot use the word milk, for example. They can't describe it as a milk, as a cheese. They're going to have to come up with other names. And so the big question here is, is that consumer protection or is this a dairy cartel gone mad? Ladies, what do you reckon? Lena? Well, fair enough. Very good. Well done. But is it really this is the biggest issue here in, in food in Europe? I mean, the horse meat scandal is less than five years old. So what is it exactly? Okay, we want to change. Give us alternates. Or another five years of experts groups and meetings and experts groups and consultations and wasting time and wasting money for something that I'm free to call it milk or not. Nobody's going to change my opinion to call it soy milk, almond milk, or coconut milk, or rice milk. Seriously. I think... Consumers will still, especially the ones who buy, like I sometimes buy milk substitutes. But my question would be, do people really not know that they aren't actually from dairy? I mean, it's very obvious in the name to me. I don't know what kind of evidence was presented to the court. But really, are people accidentally buying soya milk thinking that it's from a cow? Well, there could be some very, very confused vegetarians and vegans out there, Alva. I mean... Who are we to judge the vegan, the vegan and vegetarian community? I don't know. I'm in two minds where I don't feel protected by this decision at all. But by the same token, the court doesn't decide what goes before it. So the court is just making a ruling based on what the complainants were bringing to it. But it does strike me that if you are a dairy-related company, and this is the best argument you've got, is to stop someone else calling their product almond milk, for example. Well, it seems to me like you need to get a better product and need to go and do some of your own marketing to figure this out. I mean, who are we to even say where the word milk came from? You know, this is, it's all just a branding association to a cow in the first place. So why should the dairy industry get to own the word, is my view. There are bigger issues that we need to worry about, especially when it comes to food. There are still many ingredients in our bread, in our the way we bottle water still in plastic. We have lots of lots of lots of regulations to work on and let's leave milk in its place and let the people call it milk. Simply. Around about three weeks ago we learned that Leo Varadka, the new Taoiseach of Ireland, aka the Prime Minister of Ireland, He is now confirmed in the position. He's been in the post for about a week now. So that seemed like a big turnaround, great progress in Ireland. Then there was some really surprising news just two days later from Serbia, where Anna Brnovic, who is a 41-year-old technocrat close to the president, Aleksandr Vucic, she was nominated to be the country's first female prime minister, and she is also openly gay. But there are some problems in Parliament where it looks like she's going to struggle to be confirmed. So there was this great high, like two openly gay prime ministers being announced in the space of a few days. And now there might be a low coming up. And I think there is a few different layers to both of these stories. Alba, what do you reckon about it? Well, obviously, I can more speak to the Irish side of things. I was talking with another one of my friends who's openly gay, and we both kind of agreed that for us, you know, as openly gay people in Ireland, that this is progress. The fact that he comes from a migrant background is also progress. A few years ago, 10 years ago, I would never, ever have imagined that not only could you succeed as an openly gay person in Ireland, but that you could reach the highest office in the land, basically. And that is very much inspiring. However, he is also seen by many people to be very right-leaning. He's been branded a Tory 
he started a welfare cheats campaign this year after we've come out of many, many years of austerity. So I think there are concerns that, yes, this could be seen symbolically and optically as very progressive. But we also need to remember the politics behind this man. Lena, you grew up in the Middle East. Can you imagine a time when there would be an openly gay leader of a Middle Eastern country? Or is that just so far from possible reality that you can't imagine it? Ryan, I only hope this will happen during my life. I think we're far from even acknowledging that we do have gay communities. We don't talk about it. It's something, it's a taboo. Um, Just recently in one of the Arab countries, there's a group of very important singers and it's a band and they are very successful and they perform everywhere. They were banned to perform in this particular country because they are a group of gays. In the Middle East, the religion has a big role. Uh, It's a community and culture very much uh, impacted by religion. So I think until we become a little bit more liberal, this might happen. And what about the case in Serbia, where I was, I mean, I was frankly shocked to read that headline that she'd been nominated in the first place. I think it's interesting to hear that she has not necessarily been greeted by the press in Serbia in the same way that Leo Vradker was. And we know that she still has quite a way to go to actually get the nomination. But I still think it is progress. Even to know that an openly gay person could be nominated in areas of Europe which are still seen as not being as progressive. And also, what does this mean for the accession process? You know, is it for the optics of that? Is it to impress the EU, for example? We know that some accession countries or neighbour countries do do things like this. I'm from a human rights background. And you get places like Albania signing on to things in the Human Rights Council about LGBTI rights that they probably wouldn't have done before. And is it because they are showing the EU, you know, we're ready, we're ready to join the EU and we're ready to kind of hold the same values? I do hope it's not an accessory, certainly, and it will be a double progress uh, for Serbia, especially that they are expected to become members in the EU by 2020. Her double progress will be if she really changes the legislation, the anti-corruption legislation are more enforced and more empowered. On human rights issues, the country has a very low ranking. She would really mark a difference and she would make a legacy for all the gay community in Europe and across the world if she tackles these issues the education, the health, and not to become just an accessory because I would like to let the country look good and become like more European. Okay, let's move on now to our Dear Politico advice section, the moment in the podcast where the personal meets the political. And we address the challenges, the problems, and the big questions facing our listeners. So this week, Maria from Sofia. She's recently moved to Brussels to work for an EU institution. She's been offered access to a big luxury apartment back home in Sofia for just 200 euros a month. It's a handy offer because she needs somewhere to store some possessions. But the apartment's huge. It's more than 100 square metres. Maria is also worried what this will look like in Brussels. She's got big plans for a top job and she wants to get to the top fast. Ladies, is this a wise move for Maria to take this heavily discounted apartment or should she pass up the temptation and leave the fancy flat aside? Sounds familiar. Um, yeah, I think that now we we are in a time when these things are coming to the fore more often. And I think that there's a drive for more transparency, less conflicts of interest, etc., particularly in kind of the European bubble. 
So it is something I think, Maria, you're going to have to be careful about if recent events show anything. But maybe she's just got a nice friend. I mean, like, who wouldn't take a nice flat from a nice friend? <laughs> there isn't such a nice friend and a nicer flat. <laughs> what? Just there's for no free. such thing as a free like, flat, Lena? Absolutely not. I mean, if she's, she's a career woman, she'd like to go up, up there in, in the hierarchy and become somebody uh, in, in the EU, she should lead by example. And if she accepts a nicer flat from a nicer f- friend, then she will accept a nice private jet from another a nice friend. Where is the leadership and where is the transparency? The, the broken windows theory, you know, like first you take a free chocolate and then you take a private jet. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, I wonder if one of the issues here is the differences between national political cultures. You know, what is acceptable in Sofia or some other capital, I'm not trying to target Bulgaria, might be different to what is acceptable in Brussels, especially given that there have been scandals around how people pay their friends or how people use certain resources that are made available by the EU. What do you reckon about that potential culture conflict? Yeah, I think for Maria, the practical advice would be to recall that expectations are different here uh, than they are. We know that rule of law and corruption, etc., it's different and we're all at different stages of that in the EU, but be very mindful of it when you're on your way here. And whatever you do, Maria, make sure you don't put all of the utility bills in your name. Or that you cut off those accounts when you leave the apartment. (laughs) Okay, well, we hope that was useful advice, Maria. Now it's time to say goodbye to our Brussels Brains Trust. Bye, Alva. Bye, Ryan. Bye, Lena. Well, see you next week, Ryan and Alva. Well, that brings us to the end of the first official episode of EU Confidential. So thanks so much for listening. We really enjoyed having you join us for the ride. If you've got something to contribute for future shows or want to ask something of us, just send an email to playbook at politico.eu. That's playbook at politico.eu. And now we rely on you to get the word out about this podcast as well. So please tell your colleagues or your friends if you enjoyed listening. You can obviously also subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. So thanks so much. We'll be back next Thursday with another episode of EU Confidential. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah.